And so again, shalom and welcome, as we are embarking on the uh, fifth aliyah of Parasha Vayakel. And it's going to be an amazing uh, journey today, as we are going to have some wonderful review, in fact. The, the uh, commentary from Midrash Tankuma that we've been involved in here this week, which is uh, not always the case. We don't always get a, a chance to explore Midrash Tankuma. There are so many sources I, that I, I, I look at and go through uh, each and every day and glean from. And so there's such a variety. There's the Midrash Rabbah, Mid, Midrash Tankuma. There's, of course, Art Skol Chumash. There's Bahaturim, uh, the Kehot Chumash, Pituke Chotam, uh, Ramban, Rashi. You know, the list goes on. It's amazing. We have so many wonderful sources. What a wonderful and amazing uh, time of, uh, of the year. Not time of the year, excuse me. Time in life, I should say. Uh, to be in where we have these sources. And and by the way, not one of the sources, not one of them are on the internet. <laughs> well, I mean, they are. Some of them are. And I'm talking about the what, what we talk about here. I am actually looking at the physical book, the physical copy, not, not the internet. I did not go, I don't go online and uh, print off articles and <laughs> share them with you, Rukashim. Uh, hallelujah. Isn't that wonderful? Man, if you <clears throat> hang around Sar Shalom any length of time, um, and and Lapid Judaism, whatever, uh, you'll become a bookaholic. Yes, and we do have a we do have a support group for that. We have a support group for bookaholics, and uh, the only problem with the support group is that it only makes you worse. The support group makes you worse. It makes you want more books. Uh, Baruch Hashem. But there'll be worse things, right? Of course, right. All right. We are in page 523. Page 523. Baruch Hashem. You know you're a Lapidnik when, uh, when your family pastime is you go out to a nice kosher restaurant, you have a nice kosher dinner, and then you go out book shopping. You like to hang around half-price books, the, uh, the Judaica section. And that for you is a night out on the town. You know you've made it. You've arrived. 523, uh, page 523 in the article, We are in chapter 36, 36. And we are looking at where the fifth aliyah is on uh, verse 20. Verse 20 begins in verse 20. So it says here, I left out Rabbi Monk and all my source quotations. How could I forget Rabbi Monk? He and I become good friends. Uh, Amen. Le Futun He said, He made the planks of the tabernacle of acacia wood standing erect. Verse 21. Ten cubits was the height of the plank, and the cubit and a half was the width of each plank. Each plank shall have two tenons. Tenons. Slika. Parallel to one another, so he did for the planks of the tabernacle. Verse 23, he made the planks of the tabernacle, 20 planks for the south side. He made 40 silver sockets under the 20 planks, two sockets under one plank for its two tenions, and two sockets under the next plank for its two tenions. And for the second wall of the tabernacle on its north side, he made 20 planks. Verse 26, 
There are 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under one plank, one socket under the next plank. For the back of the tabernacle on the west, he made six planks. He made two planks for the corners of the tabernacle on the back. Verse 29, they, uh, they were even at the bottom and together they were matching at the top. Two single rings, he made, so he did, so he did to them both at the two corners. Verse 30. There were eight planks and their silver sockets, 16 sockets, two sockets, two sockets under each plank. By the way, I just love the whole silver socket thing. And I've talked about this before that the silver sockets were made from the, uh, the shekels, the half shekels that were collected from uh, the men as atonement money. In fact, this coming Sabbath is Shabbat Shekelim, in which we remember this mitzvah. We we have a special, uh, we read a special reading to remember the mitzvah of giving the shekels. But I just love to think about the concept that the entire tabernacle is founded on a foundation, it's built upon, I should say, a foundation of redemption, or if, uh, 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 of giving the half shekel. I just, I just love that aspect. I don't know, it seems, it seems so basic. It seems so uh, shrug of the shoulders, like, of course, and yet, at the same time, it's such a deep thing, and it just ministers to me, and I've always, I've always, and I'm, I'm not just saying this because I'm reading it now, I mean, I've studied the tabernacle with God's help for, uh, I guess, decades now, and uh, it's, that's always been an aspect that's, that's, that's really ministered to me, it's the, the concept of redemption, probably because I realized that... Uh, I was uh, I was that guy on the junk pile, right? And somebody gave silver for me. The somebody being Yeshua. Verse thirty-one. He made bars of acacia wood, five for the planks of one side of the tabernacle, and five bars on the planks of the second side, and five bars for the planks of the tabernacle at the back on the west. Verse thirty-three. He made the middle bar to extend within the planks from end to end. He covered the planks with gold and made their rings of gold as, as housing for the bars, and he covered the bars with gold. Verse 35, he made the partition of turquoise, purple, and scarlet wool, and linen twisted. He made it with a woven design of cherubs. He made it four pillars of acacia wood and plated them with gold. Their hooks were gold, and he cast for them four sockets of silver. Verse 37, for the entrance of the Tent, he made a screen of turquoise, purple, and scarlet wool, linen and twisted, uh, excuse me, and linen, twisted work of an embroider. Its pillars were five, and their hooks, and he plated their tops and their bands with gold, and their sockets were five of copper. Now, we're not quite finished reading the fifth Aliyah, but I want to pause here for a moment and, and look at something that... Uh, Rabbi Monk has to say about <clears throat> this particular reading. Um, first and foremost, let me take a step uh, over here to verse 14 where it talks about the curtains of goat hair. This is just a nice comment on modesty. It's actually not written. It's, it's my interpretation. What's written here, here's the comment that, from Rabbi Monk. Yeriot um, izim, curtains of goat hair. Tosafot comment that these curtains were made at the beginning of the construction so that they could serve as a covering for the tabernacle as soon as the beams 
were in place. In another uh, comment, something interesting just to think about is that since the coverings were so holy that the the people, I believe they were ladies, who were involved in, um, in uh, I guess what, weaving them, I suppose you would say, they did not shear the goat first and then use that to make the curtains, but rather they 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 wove them uh, or however you, whatever the technical term is. I apologize for not knowing that uh, from the live goat. Obviously, when you shear a goat, you don't kill it. But I'm just saying that it there was no in between process. It was uh, put taken from the live goat. And make a curtain so that it there would not be any uh, point of contamination. I just thought that was an interesting, um, interesting uh, thought. So it says the tabernacle was not to remain for even a moment without a covering. Also, the Aaron, that is the ark, was brought in immediately for it was not to remain outside for even a moment. As soon as holy objects are brought into the world, they need a protective covering. I think that this is an amazing um, comment that has we could interpret to talk about modesty. Covering our physical bodies is like covering the holy ark. It's like covering the Mishkan. Are we not the temple of God? You know, many people talk about the temple of God, even Christian people, for instance. They talk about our bodies of the temple of God, and so and depending on whether someone is uh, of one particular aspect of Christianity or whether or not they're Lapid Jewish or whatever, people would say, well, if we're the temple of God, then we should be treating our bodies uh, properly. Uh, some would say, well, if we're the temple of God, why should we, be, why should we bring uh, non-kosher um, food into our temple? Which is a great argument, right? You can, When you're talking to your friends and they're wondering why you eat kosher, you can say, well, our bodies are the temple of the Most High God. And most people would understand that and, and, and relate to it and, be, and agree with it, right? Then you can ask the person, and I've found this to be mm, effective, I guess, is the word I'm looking for, but, but I don't mean it in a manipulative sense. I just mean effective in making the point. To tell somebody, listen, suppose that the temple in uh, Yerushalayim, suppose it existed today. I'm going to ask you a question. Just ask the person. Just, I'm going to ask you a question. Suppose that the temple existed today and the altar of God was there. Would you feel comfortable offering up a pig, a swine, a hog on the altar of God? Now, I have, I have personally asked people this question many times over the years. And in every single case... Even the person has no interest in Judaism whatsoever, no interest in Kashrut. They immediately get a funny look on their face, and they kind of, you know, kind of, kind of look at you kind of funny, and they say, "No way." Some of them even say, "No way, Jose." And so I followed up that by saying, "Well, if we are the temple of God, then how come we feel so comfortable bringing a pig, a hog, and a swine and sacrificing it on the altar in our in our bodies?" So, <clears throat> but this is not talking about what's on the inside. This is talking about what's on the outside. If we are, in fact, the temple or the tabernacle of God, then we should cover ourselves properly. We should cover ourselves with holy garments. 
And it says here, as soon as holy objects come into the world, well, every single morning is like a resurrection. Which is why when a man gets up, he says the brakov, that God, he should thank God that he, should re, that he has returned his soul within him. Why? Because our soul goes to the Shemayim while we're sleeping and is, uh, you know, refreshed. And then God, in his mercy, gives our soul back to us so that we should arise in the morning. And so therefore, every single morning is like the resurrection from the dead. Think about that for a second. Every single morning we're practicing for the resurrection. It says that some, it says in the, in the, in the uh, Tanakh, that there would be those who are raised to life and those who are raised to eternal destruction. The trick is, not really a trick, but you know what I mean, the choice is ours. So if we're looking forward to being resurrected to life in the age to come, maybe sooner in our time, amen, then every single morning we should make a choice that we're being resurrected to life. Meaning that every single morning we should choose to follow God. Since ultimately it's our choice, we should get up and say, since today is like a resurrection, let it be so that I should be resurrected to eternal life and not to eternal destruction. So to that end, we start getting dressed. As a man, we put on our clothes. Obviously, you know, we we put on our talikatan. And one of the, one of the things that we put on um, rather soon, rather quickly, is our kippah. Why? Because our kippah keeps our head on straight. That's what happens. But we should also dress modestly, which modestly includes neatly, I believe, my opinion. I believe it, it includes dressing neatly. Not clearly if you're going to go out and mow the grass or if you've got some other type of job that, uh, you know, you want to wear the appropriate clothing. But even still, you can dress neatly. You don't have to dress uh, downly. But anyway, downly. Don't dress downly, dress neatly. <clears throat> but that's not what I want to talk about. It says here, why do we study the Mishkan? This is what uh, Rabbi Monk has to say, which I think is uh, marveloso. It says, Rabbi Bakya compares the specifications pertaining to the tabernacle, which cover half of the book of Exodus, with the laws of the sacrificial service, which are also extensive, covering more than half of Leviticus. So we have, with the book of Exodus, nearly half the book is dedicated to the study of the tabernacle, which doesn't even exist anymore. If you think about it, <clears throat> the tabernacle itself hasn't existed for a long, long, long time. We haven't had the temple in 2,000 years. But how long is it b between the tabernacle and the second temple? Or how, how, how long has it been since we had the tabernacle at Shiloh? Versus today, I don't know, 3,000 years, something like that. I don't have the exact number. Some of you will look it up and you'll be able to tell me, whatever. The point being, it's been a long time. And yet, it occupies a half of the uh, book of Exodus. And the laws of sacrifice occupy half the book of Leviticus. And we don't have sacrifices anymore. And the reason we don't have sacrifices anymore is because there isn't a temple. It's not because of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. Why? How do we know that? Because the temple continued for another, what, 40 plus years 
after the resurrection and the disciples, including Paul, continued to sacrifice after the resurrection. So it wasn't the resurrection that was the catalyst. The catalyst for not having sacrifice was there isn't a temple. That's why Jews don't sacrifice today. Many of you know that already. I'm, I'm preaching to the proverbial Levitical choir. But anyway, it says here, um, in fact, the Talmud observes that although the sacrificial laws were only relevant for the time that the Holy Temple stood, the Torah describes its laws as at great length. This is an indication of the importance of the theoretical study of the sacrificial laws. Hashem considers the study of the laws of the sacrifice as equivalent to actually offering the sacrifices, and so he pardons the sins of those who engage in its study. This is from the Talmud Tananit 27b. So when we study the sacrifices, we are in fact offering sacrifices. In a spiritual sense, of course, right? So it says, the same applies to the tabernacle. The diligent study of its complex concepts elevates man to the higher spheres of thought. There, far from all material preoccupations, he discovers the spirit of holiness that filled the tabernacle and later the temple. Hence, although the tabernacle is no longer in existence, it continues to fulfill its mission. So by us studying about the tabernacle, we are in fact building the tabernacle. We are in fact living, as it were, in the tabernacle. We are in fact serving in the tabernacle. So it says, through our study of its laws, it continues to live among us. Moreover, by insisting on repeating these laws, the Torah arouses our interest and draws our attention to the great importance of the basic ideal of a divine dwelling place in man's midst. I just thought that was a beautiful insight because sometimes as we're studying the tabernacle, reading about the planks, reading about the uh, staves, reading about the rings, and, uh, you know, one might think, well, it's wonderful, but um, why do we have to read about it? The answer is because by studying and reading about it, we are in fact making it, creating it, living in it, exploring it, benefiting from it, the holy tabernacle. And of course, there are other esoteric meanings behind it. It's the, 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 it's, the, it's the image of God, it's the image of man, it's the image of the universe, it's the image of the Messiah, etc., etc., etc. Chapter 37. Chapter 37 begins by saying, Bezalel made the ark. What's Bezalel's name mean? It means in the shadow. In the shadow of God, he made the ark. He made it of acacia wood. Why of acacia wood? Because the tree of life is acacia wood. Two and a half cubits in length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. He covered it with pure gold, and with and without, and he made for it a gold crown all around. He cast for them four rings of gold on its four corners, two rings on its one side, and two rings on its second side. He made stays of acacia wood and covered them with gold, and he inserted the staves and the rings of the sides of the ark to carry the ark. He made a cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits its length, and a cubit and a half its width. He made two cherubim of gold, hammered out that he make them from the two ends of the cover, one cherub from the end at one side, and one cherub from the end of the other side. From the cover did he make the cherubim from its two ends. The cherubs were with wings spread upward, sheltering the cover of the wings, and their faces Toward one another, toward the cover, were the faces of the cherubim. 
He made the table of acacia wood, two cubits its length, a cubit its width, a cubit its height. He covered it with pure gold and made for it a gold crown all around. He made for it a molding of one hand breadth all around. He made a gold crown for its molding all around. He cast for it four rings in gold and placed the rings on the four corners of its legs. The rings were opposite the molding as housing for the staves to carry the table. He made the staves of acacia wood, covered them with gold to carry the table. He made the utensils that were on the table, its dishes, its spoons, its pillars, and its shelving tubes, and with which was covered of pure gold. By the way, last night in uh, Zeke and Yosef's class on Hesed, he mentioned about, talking about Musar, and how, uh, talking about the words of the Mashiach, and how Messiah reminded us that, or told us, or taught us rather, that in order for the cup to really be pure on the outside, it must be pure on the inside. And it just reminded me as I was sitting there that this is something the sages talk about of, of why the ark was covered in gold on the inside and the outside. In order, it goes on to say, they, they talk about the fact that a Torah scholar, in order to be a, a legitimate Torah scholar, must be someone who has gold on the inside and gold on the outside. If we just have gold on the outside but not on the inside, we're only kill, kill, kidding ourselves and we're not really a, uh, a ark. Okay, so going to the Midrash Tankuma, there is a comment here, a rather lengthy comment to section 8 of um, Vayakel. And it's really a series of reviews. Things that we've learned, things that we've been taught already, things that I've talked about in the Aliyah day, but it's just wonderful here because it all kind of puts it together, and so it'll be a, it'll be a nice, uh, you know, time uh, as we are drawing to a, to a conclusion, if I can talk, uh, today. So it says, <clears throat> since it was revealed before the one who spoke, the world, the, the and the world came to be, that Israel will sin at Shittim. Therefore, the whole and blessed be he remedied them with Shittim to atone for the fact, for the act at Shittim. Now, what's it talking about? It's talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was also a uh, cedar tree, also an acacia tree. So God, the way that God works is that he heals us with the very same thing that killed us. It's complete opposite of the way that mankind operates. Mankind, if somebody sticks you with a knife, then you heal it with a bandage. God says, if you got hurt with a knife, I'm going to heal you with a knife. So if it was a man, if it was an Adam, a divine man, by the, by the way, remember, Adam was born of a virgin. If, Ad, if it was a divine man who hurt you, that is, brought death in the world, then it's going to be a divine Adam, a divine man who's going to, who's going to heal you. He says he overlaid it with pure gold. This refers to the Torah disciples. For just as wood gains value when overlaid with gold, so too do the disciples continually gain honor through Torah, which is in their minds. By the way, what makes us valuable? Torah. And just as people say pure gold, so the Torah purifies the mind and thoughts. That is of the wise. The wise Torah scholars, for, for it is written, they are more desirable than gold, than even much fine gold. If you want to purify your mind, you've got to apply the fine gold of Torah to it. Bezalel made, we find that when the Holy One, blessed be he, told Moshe to make the Mishkan, he said to him concerning each object, you shall make. However, regarding the Ark, he said, they shall make. Why the plural form? For the Holy One must be he commanded all of Israel to make it so that no one should have an excuse to say to his fellow, I gave a lot for the ark, therefore I have learned a great deal. 
and I have more than you, for you barely gave even a small amount for the ark, so you have no portion in the Torah. This goes back to the Messiah's um, parable of the workers of the field. There were those who worked from the very early morning hours, and there were those who were hired at the 11th hour. At the end of the day, everybody got the same wage. Because why? We all agreed to work for the very same wage. This is why no one can say to anyone, hey, I've been a Jew longer than you. My great-great-grandfather, my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpappy were all Jews. And as a result, I walk on water. Nobody can say that. Because it doesn't matter if your uh, grandfather was with Moses on Mount Sinai or if you became a Jew Tuesday. Either way, it's the same wage. So it says here, and it says, And therefore the Torah is compared to water, as it says, Here, all who are thirsty go to the water. Just as a man is not embarrassed to tell his fellow who is younger than him, give me water to drink, so too he should not be embarrassed to ask someone younger than him, teach me Torah or teach me this subject. By the way, someone says, well, I've been, uh, I was a Jew and my dad was a Jew and my grand-grandfather was a Jew and we've been Jews forever. I'm related to the whosoevers. Fact of the matter is, is everybody's soul was made at the same time. We all come into the world at different times because God tells us when, when it's our time to come and when it's our time to leave. But the fact of the matter is, is we're all, all of our souls are made at the same time. So the reality is we're all together separately. <laughs> Think about that. Selah. Anyway, and just as in the case of water, whoever wishes to drink can drink for free. So anyone who wishes to study Torah can study Torah for free. For it costs nothing, as it is stated. Go and buy without money and without a price. Why was the Torah given in the wilderness? To teach you that just as the wilderness is free to all, so are the words of Torah free to anyone who wishes to learn. So a person should not say, and by the way, I'm not skipping around. This is all in Midrash Tankuma Vayikel section 8. It's amazing. This is like this is like the Lapid summary right here. It says so a person should not say I'm a Torah scholar and Torah was given to me and my fathers but you and your fathers were not Torah scholars for your fathers were proselytes converts. Therefore it is written that the Torah is a heritage of the congregation of Yaakov meaning everybody which includes anyone Say that with me. Anyone. Say it a little louder. I didn't hear you. Anyone. That's right. Now I can hear you. Which includes anyone who joins the congregation of Yaakov. Now you do have to join the congregation. You can't, you can't be a uh, Messianic Gentile and claim to have Torah. You can't be a Hebrew roots person and hate the rabbis and claim to have Torah. You can't be a Karite who's not really Jews. You know the Nazis did not round up Karites? And send them to the concentration camp. Did you know that? You know why they didn't? Because they they weren't considered Jews by the Nazis. Just think about that for a second. I digress. That was completely off topic. So it says here, even proselytes who are engaged in Torah study, it says, are equal to the Kohen Gadol. That is the high priest. Why? As it says, which man shall fulfill and by which he shall live, I am Adonai. 
It does not say a Kohen, a Levi, or an Israelite, but simply a man. Therefore, one law and one judgment it shall be, etc. See what it states concerning the sons of Israel, uh, not Israel, excuse me, Yitro, and the families of scholars, those who reside at Yabetz, Tirasim, Shimasim, and Sukasim. Tirasim are so called because they sat in the Likas Hagaziz, that is the chamber of hewn stone in the Beisag Middash. It goes on to say here that consider the descendants of Yitro. He was a convert, and yet his descendants were not only part of Israel, they actually sat in the Sanhedrin. So it, it says that and others of his descendants sat in the shade of the Holy Spirit. And yet they were all descendants of Rehkov, who was a descendant of Yitro. Shemaiah and Avtelion, these are the these are the Zugot, these are the pairs that preceded uh, Hallel and Shemai. They were descendants of Sisera. Sisera. They were descendants of Sisera. And yet, it says here, they taught Torah in public with the men of the great assembly. These are converts. These are converts who were not just uh, in Israel, but they led Israel. They were the leaders of the Jews. And they were among the men of the great assembly. Why do we need to know all this, it says? To teach us that Torah was given to all of Israel. Therefore it is written, These words Hashem spoke to the entire congregation. And it is written, They shall make an ark of cedar wood. Rabbi Shimon ben Yochai said, There are three crowns. The crown of Torah, the crown of Kehuna, that is priesthood. If you want to be a big Kehuna, that means be a big priest. And the crown of kingship. What is the source of the crown of Torah? For it is written concerning the ark, you shall make upon it a golden rim. And the crown of priesthood. For it is written concerning the altar, a golden rim. And the crown of kingship. For it says concerning the table, a golden rim. Why is it written without the letter Yud, but read as if it contained the letter Yud? This, this word is Zion Resh for gold. To teach you that if a person merits it, he becomes a crown, a Zer. But if he does not merit it, then he becomes a strange, a czar. This is what uh, Zeke and Yosef was talking about last night. That if you have a pure heart, if you merit it, meaning that you have the right heart, you have a pure heart, you have a contrite heart, a humble heart, a heart of teshuva, you have not, you have not embraced your bad character traits, but you've, you're actively working on them and or you have renounced them and have, have departed from them. As a result, for you, it becomes a zare, it becomes a crown. But if you don't have a pure heart, if you do, you, you embrace your negative character traits as, you know, just part of your personality because you were uh, born Irish or whatever, then you are a czar. It's estranged from you. And why regarding all the vessels is written, you shall make, whereas regarding the ark it is written, you shall make upon it, to teach you that if one has merited Torah, he's merited everything. If you want to be a king, you want to be a priest, then you got to get the crown of Torah. If you get the crown of Torah, you get all three crowns. It's a triple crown. It's the ultimate triple crown horse race if you get the Torah. All right, one more little section here and we will conclude our time together. 
<coughs> it says he made the beams from the Mishkan from cedar wood. Rabbi Taklifa of Caesarea. I love Caesarea. I love Jerusalem. But I'm kind of hoping that my house in Shemayim is on the coast of Caesarea. But that's completely irrelevant to what I want to say here. Rabbi Taklifa of Caesarea said, The Holy One, blessed be He, teaches us an ethical way of life. For if a man sought to build a house from a fruit-bearing tree, the Torah tells him, when the king of kings, the holy and blessed be he, who owns everything, ordered a mishkan to be made, he spared the fruit-bearing trees, so that all the more so you should spare them. Now what does that have to do with what we're about to read? Listen, what did, what did Mashiach say? He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And he goes on to say that we should bear fruit, right? Right. So we, if we're righteous, are fruit-bearing trees, so we're going to be spared. So it says here, what is the meaning of the of for the Mishkan? For if the ben, if Bnei Yisrael should be guilty, the Mishkan will be used as a pledge against them. That is collateral. It'll be used in place of them. In other words, the Mishkan will be punished instead of them. Moshe said, "Master of the worlds, what will be in times when they have neither a Mishkan nor a base of Midash?" And the Holy One said, "Then I will take the righteous people from among them." And use them as a pledge. Thus it says, He killed all those who are pleasant to the eye. These are the righteous ones. Therefore it is written, He made the beams of the Mishkan. In other words, He spares His fruit trees and takes His righteous. In the Midrash Rabbah, it says, He takes one righteous man from among them and uses him as collateral. End of our Aliyah today. I hope you have a beautiful, amazing, and magnificent day. We will see everybody tomorrow with God's help. And uh, until then, show somebody the light of Messiah. Be kind to them. Be sweet to them. And I pray that your day is filled with blessing. Shalom, shalom.